One of the benefits of uh, speaking from the floor on the evenings is that if you sit further back, I can still come and be close to you. So, <laughs> so uh, just we ran out of white paper in our house yesterday, but I thought this is uh, appropriate given uh, the new St. Patrick's Day celebration in our city today. So. Um, we are here uh, continuing a series in First uh, Thessalonians. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there. If you want to pick the one in the pew in front of you, page 986, we're going to be looking at First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, 2 and 3, actually. And while you're turning there, just uh, if you've actually looked at our sermon card, which is the little blue thing in the pew in front of you, you will notice that we are preaching on the same passage for the next two weeks. And you may think, well, gosh, why are we doing that? Well, it's because we feel like there are two great sermons bursting out of this text that we want to preach. And so uh, I'm going to be teaching this week significantly on the character of Paul's ministry. And then uh, Greg's going to pick up next week and talk about the theme of suffering that runs through it. Um, and, uh, and so we felt it was worth giving both of these their due. And so that's why we're preaching on this text for the next uh, two weeks. And it's why I may not cover everything in the passage tonight that you might see as we read it. Um, having given that introduction, let's go ahead and read together. First Thessalonians, starting in chapter 2, verse 17. And we'll read through chapter 3, verse 10. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you. Through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for your word. God, we thank you for the richness of how you have revealed yourself to us. God, in it we see who you are and we see the ways that you work in the world. God, I pray tonight that we would, um, as we study this passage together, have uh, eyes that are ready to see and hearts that are ready to hear and receive from you all that you have to say to us. 
God, give me, by your Holy Spirit, the words uh, that you want me to say tonight, that, Lord, we might be encouraged in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ellie Wiesel, I probably said that wrong, but Ellie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, Nobel Peace Prize winning author and speaker, says this, The opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness. It is indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy. It is indifference. And the opposite of life is not death. It is indifference. I read this week a story of a girl named Danielle. She lived in uh, Tampa, Florida. And her story is one of neglect, in fact, of indifference on such a profound level that it provokes anger and indignation when you read it. It's a story of a six-year-old girl who was found in the back room of her home. Her mother, her two adult brothers were home. This is where they lived. But she was found in this back room, this back closet, alone, surrounded by a pile four feet high of soiled diapers. She herself was wearing only a diaper. And as the police and the social workers came and they took her out, they found that, in fact, she was like a baby in every respect. She could not eat solid food. She did not know how to talk. As she left, her mother cried, Don't take my baby. I love her. Her mother didn't hate her. Her mother didn't beat her. Her mother didn't act violently towards her. But she was simply indifferent. All she provided was enough food to keep her body alive. This poor girl suffered what the social workers called the worst case of neglect that she had ever seen. The doctor said she would be permanently scarred. Her mother claimed to love her, but the reality was otherwise. In her indifference, she did great damage. It's usually universally recognized that indifference is a bad thing. Indifference to suffering, indifference to the trials of others. This is why we cheer on when people stand up and oppose slavery. This is why we get behind organizations like International Justice Mission or Love 146 here in New Haven that fight against sex trafficking and the abuse of children. This is why we so get involved with others who saw because we know that indifference is not right. It's not good. But you know, if we're honest, at least I know if I look into my own heart, if I'm honest, it's not that hard to see how easily I can be indifferent. It's not anything like the story in Tampa, but I know that I can break my little two-year-old girl's heart by simply being indifferent to her. If I walk into the door at the end of the day and I just ignore her, if I don't pay attention to her 
talking to me. If I make everything else, my own comfort, my own agendas, my own plans, more important than looking her in the face and interacting with her, it will break her heart. I am not incapable of indifference. And I guess is that I'm not alone. Why? Why might we be indifferent? Well, I think there are lots of reasons. One might be self-protection. If I engage myself in caring about other people, I might get hurt. It's going to be really messy. It might cost me something. And they might not, they might reject me. They might not think that I'm the greatest thing in the world when I try to love them. So so I'm just going to keep my distance because it's a whole lot easier. It might be that we're indifferent because we're preoccupied. That is, I have my mind on other things. And we never get around to actually identifying and seeing the people who are right in front of us. Because we have our plans, we have our tasks, we have our, our things to do, and we never see the people right in front of us. It might be from self-indulgence. I have a limited amount of resources and time and energy, and I'm going to invest them in the things that give to me the most bang for my buck. I'm going to invest my time and energy and even my love in things that make me feel good, help me feel like I'm making a contribution to the world, that contribute to my success or my happiness. Loving people, it's really messy, costly. Doesn't always give the return that we want. And so there are lots of reasons why we might be indifferent towards others. So we ought not to think that we are above being indifferent. And so we must face the words of Elie Wiesel again. That indifference is the opposite of love. And it is a terrible thing to live a life of indifference. The good news is that our passage this morning portrays, in fact, just the opposite of indifference. This evening, not this morning. Did I say this morning? I think I did, yeah. This evening, um, we're looking at a passage that has a, it is a portrayal of what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ grips someone's heart, moves us deeply to live a different kind of life. Not of indifference, but one of deep investment in others for God's sake. If you've been here, you know that the book of Thessalonians is a letter written by Paul. He administered there and then he had had to leave quickly after a short period of time. And he was writing back to them because he wanted them to be encouraged. He wanted them to stand fast in the gospel. And if you remember, we looked at chapter 1 and he reminded them of the gospel, how it worked in them. And the gospel, how it was at work in the apostles as they came and proclaimed Christ to them. And how the gospel then rang forth as it took root in this city and in the hearts and lives of these people. And it, it, it went forth further and further as this good news that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, to redeem a world for God. And it rang forth. And then chapters 2 and 3, what we see is Paul honing in on, on the nature of his ministry, of how he and his friends worked as they were doing what they were doing among the Thessalonians. And as we read earlier, you, you might have picked this up. He's doing it because he's so afraid. 
We were so afraid that you might lose heart because we knew you were suffering because of your faith. And it'd be easy to turn back. It'd be easy to say it's, it's not worth it. So Paul says, I want to remind you. I want to remind you of what kind of ministry we had among you because that ministry reflects the message of the good news of the gospel that we preached among you. And that message points to a Savior who is worth holding on to no matter what. And so we ask the question, and what our passage looks at tonight, what we're going to look at is what was the nature of Paul's gospel ministry and what does it have to teach us about life? What we see is that instead of indifference, it is a picture of surprising investment in the spiritual flourishing of others. So we're going to look at three things, three characteristics or three aspects of Paul's ministry. I even got it alliterated so that we're going to look at the feel of gospel ministry, we're going to look at the focus of gospel ministry, and we're going to look at the fellowship of gospel ministry. So the feel, the focus, and the fellowship of gospel ministry. So first, let's look at the feel of the gospel ministry. What I want you to see is that as Paul was ministering, he, the feel of it was that of parental or familial love. Throughout this book so far, Paul has said, Paul has pictured in different ways, my love for you is like a parent or like a sibling. He uses this word in in verse 7 of chapter 2. He says, I was like a mother, a nursing mother caring for his baby among you as I delighted to share not only the gospel but our very lives with you. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, we are like a father exhorting and encouraging you and urging you, live a life worthy of God who has called you into his kingdom. And throughout the first three chapters, six times he has called them brothers. Or if you look at your footnotes in the, in the Pew Bibles, brothers and sisters, he's saying you are, he's not just lording it over them, but he's saying we together are siblings in this new family of God. And we have an intense love for you because of that. What did that love look like? Well, one is that it was intense. The language of this passage drips with intensity. Look in verse 17. When we were torn away from you, the word there actually means we were orphaned. Um, and it kind of, in our, the way we think about orphan, it's turned upside down. But what is, we were, we were separated from you who we ought to be connected with. We were separated. So, and he says, because of that, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you. He could have just said, we wanted to see you. But he, he heaps upon it all these adverbs and these verbs so that you would know how de- deeply. In verse 18, he says, hey, we wanted to come see you. In fact, I, Paul, wanted to see you. It's not, it wasn't good enough for me to write a letter or to send a proxy. I wanted to see you. Verses 1 and 5 of chapter 3 start with this amazing phrase. But when we could bear it no longer. This the Apostle Paul who believes so much in the sovereignty of God. That everything happens under his good control. That nothing happens apart from him. And that God is going to work out his plans in the world. And yet Paul couldn't stand it. That he didn't know what was going on with these people. I couldn't stand it any longer. Verse 6 says, 
We long to see you. In verse 10, it says, we prayed most earnestly for you. Paul's love for them was not a stoic love. It was not a detached, professorial, I'm going to impart to you information. It was the love of a brother, a sister, a mother, a father. It was intense. And it was personal. Do you see as well, in both in verse 17 and in verse 10 of chapter 3, he said, we wanted to see you face to face. It wasn't good enough to write that letter. It wasn't good enough that Timothy came and encouraged and exhorted you. I wanted to see you. That's how deeply I am committed to you. Paul wanted so much to be able to be with them again. Friends, we live in a technological age. It's easy for all of our communication to be with little handheld devices. We text, we Facebook, we Twitter, we chat, and we never see each other face to face. Now, you could use FaceTime, that's kind of cool, but, um, but, but we're not with each other most of the time. And we need to be careful that our culture doesn't rob us of the gospel character of being face to face with people. This familial love is intense, it's personal, and finally, it's costly. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul said, When we couldn't stand it any longer, we were willing to be left alone. I sent Timothy, my companion, my right-hand man, the one who is helping me get through it. I sent him away to be with you, even though it left me alone, because I cared so much about you, and I wanted desperately to know how you were doing. It refers in verse 7 as well to the distress and the afflictions that Paul was suffering. And it might have been the suffering in his present context as he's writing this letter, but elsewhere in Corinthians, Paul writes about the burden that he carries of his care for all of the churches, for all the people that he administered to. And what a, what a, what a weight, what a burden, what a, what a cost it was for him to care about so many people. So this familial love has all of these characteristics. But what I want you to see is that, that the most important thing is it's, it's a feel. The best way I could illustrate this is, and you guys may have been on one or other, the other end, maybe both uh, of this scenario. It's a Friday night and you have a curfew at 1030 and your mom's sitting at home and you don't get home. It's, uh, it's 1030. Nope. How about 11? Nope. 11.30, mom wakes up dad who's already gone to bed. They're not home yet. Right? At 12.30, they pick up the phone and they call the state police. At 1.30, they're out in their minivan cruising the strip, finding all the 24 hours fast food joints, wondering where you might be hanging out and wondering what in the world has happened to you. For Paul, the feeling that welled up in his heart was like the feeling of that parent. I just want to know that you're doing okay. I just want to know that you're standing firm. That's the feel that Paul had. 
a deeply relational picture of gospel ministry. And it challenges, I think, our culture and our heart. It challenges the way that we often prefer vicarious relationships or distance relationships, relationships at arm's length with other people. The picture that Paul gives of gospel ministry is one that's in close, that's intense, that's face-to-face. It challenges our busyness where we prioritize our tasks, our objectives, and our outcomes more than we value the people that we're interacting with on a day-to-day basis. And it challenges the inherent selfishness of our own hearts. How easy it is for us to do the calculus of, is it worth my time? What am I going to get out of interacting with this person? Is this, my, is this valuable? Am I going to get something out of it? And for Paul, his gospel-shaped ministry blew through those things, those patterns that we so easily fall into. And even though it cost him so much, he invested this deeply in them. That's the feel of gospel ministry in Paul's life. So, having had that feel then, what's the focus of Paul's ministry? What is it? Look with me in chapter 3. There's a word that's in there five times. And it's at the center of what he cared about for them. He says, I wanted to know how your faith was doing. And by that, he's not saying, I want to know that you believe the gospel... Um, once that you made a decision somewhere or that you you checked a box but what he's saying is I want to know that you are persevering that you are continuing that you are holding fast or as it says in verse 8 that you're standing firm in this faith that you professed when I was with you in the face of the suffering and affliction that you're fit that you're looking at. They had already professed belief and Paul was saying, I want to make sure that you haven't lost it because it's so precious, because it's so important. Now, one caveat, it's not that Paul didn't care about the other parts of their life. It's not that Paul wouldn't be interested in knowing about how their kids are doing or what's going on in the job or you know, how your school is progressing. But what Paul is saying is that, though I cared about those things, remember he said back in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, we, we shared not only gospel but our lives with you, right? Paul is saying we care about those things, but we have a particular concern. And we have a concern that we're not willing to exclude from our relationship with you. In fact, we want to make it central, My desire is for you to spiritually flourish. That your faith would be growing. And doesn't that make sense? Because for Paul, the gospel is about this faith. This this incredible truth that God has come and done this amazing thing for us. Sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. Rising from the dead so that all who believe in him might not perish under God's wrath but might instead experience the newness of life in relationship with God. And Paul says, if that is what God has done for us, then that should be the center of our lives. And therefore, shouldn't it be 
Isn't it right that it would be the center of our ministry to you? I care about all these other things, but I care the most that your faith would flourish and grow. This is what the end of verse 10 says. We long to be with you so that we can supply with you, to you, what is lacking in your faith. Now, he's not saying, oh, you have a, an insufficient faith and we're going to come and get it right. But what he's saying is, you're a young church, you're young believers, and we want to come along and help round out and enrich and deepen your understanding of the faith that you profess. We want to make sure that you know it well enough that you can stand firm even when it gets hard. So what does that look like in our relationships? Do we love one another? Do we love others well enough to care about their spiritual well-being? I have the privilege of having some great friends. Uh, I actually became a, a Christian in high school, and uh, Bill and Becky and Kim are friends that have walked with me since before I came to faith. And even now, when I get a chance to see them, I love being with them. Because no matter what we're talking about, and this has been true throughout our whole life, we're talking about what are you majoring in college? What are you going to do when you graduate? How are you continuing to live as a single man into your 30s? Um, What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with this job transition? Um, How are you going to raise your kids? Uh, What do you think about buying a house? You know, all these life questions that are just normal things. But every time I talk with them about any of these things, we talk about it in light of what is God doing in your life? How does God and his kingdom intersect with these different things? What what is it about the gospel that you're learning in the middle of this hard thing that you're going through? What is it about Jesus as a precious savior that's becoming more real to you in this season of life? So I love having friends like that. And I'm so thankful that not only do I have friends from way back then, but even here now, and I'm seeing it in this church. And I just want to fan it into flame that we have more and more of these relationships that we would be sharing with one another what God is teaching us as we read our Bible. We would be asking one another how God fits into our plans what God is teaching us about ourselves, how God is growing us in our, in, our, in our understanding of what a precious Savior Jesus is in the midst of the trials that we're facing. My prayer is that we would be praying for one another. If you're feeling totally overwhelmed and think, I don't know how to do this, that's one of the easiest ways to start is just to, as you're talking about things, stop and say, hey, can we pray about this? Whether it's a great thing that you want to give thanks for or something that's really hard and confusing that you need guidance and wisdom for, that's one of the easiest ways to make it a spiritual conversation is simply to stop and ask God to be a part of it. Paul cared so deeply about the Thessalonians that their spiritual lives would flourish. And I pray that would be true for us as well. And I pray that it would not simply be true in the little 
one-on-one relationships that we have with one another, although certainly there. But I was reminded as I was thinking about this, Hudson Taylor is one of my heroes of the faith. Hudson Taylor in the 19th century um, was a missionary to China. He went over, he actually came back to England. And as he was walking the the sands on the beach in Brighton, England, God gave him a vision. He had just been with thousands of believers in Britain worshiping, but his soul was, was disquieted. And as he walked the beach, God reminded him of not the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, but the millions in China who had never heard of Jesus, who knew nothing of the gospel. And so he started a mission to reach the inland parts of China with the gospel. And God used him in an amazing way. And I pray that that would be us. That would we, I I don't know if you've ever done this, but drive to the top of East Rock and stand where the little viewfinder things stand next to it because they don't work. And, And just look over the city and ask God to give you a vision of how he looks at the city. How he thinks about the people here. Pray that God would give you Paul's gospel-shaped heart to see the people here and their spiritual lives as the most important thing about them. So we've talked about the feel. It's a familial love. The focus is people's spiritual flourishing. And finally, the fellowship. And the fellowship might not be the right word. I just want to confess it. I like the F. It worked well. Give me a little break if, you, if it doesn't. But what I want you to see is what Paul did. What Paul expresses here. What is so striking about this passage is Paul's not just saying, yeah, okay, we love other people. We're really invested in this. Yeah, like our focus is spiritual. Paul is actually bound up with the Thessalonians' spiritual well-being. Paul... Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2 is where we begin to see this. Look at it with me again. He asks this rhetorical question. He's saying, we really want to come see you, but we couldn't do it. Why? He just sort of bursts out with this. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before Christ when he comes? Is it not you? And the picture he has is it's like in the Olympics. When, when you stand forth to receive your crown, your, your reward, it, it would be a laurel wreath. And Paul is saying, you, your success is a part of the, the laurel wreath that I will have from the Lord and then be able to give back to him because it's what he's done in the first place. But this, it's a part of me coming And worshiping Christ at the end is that you would be standing firm with me. And it's not, in case you're wondering, Paul isn't saying, yeah, I got another notch in my belt. Woo! You know, watch me, you know, rack up my points. You know, it's not a video game for Paul where he's trying to get highest score. Paul is so captured by his love for people because he's so captured by the glory of this Christ before he will sta- whom he will stand. And he's saying to the Thessalonians, if you don't stand firm, where will my glory and joy be? And this is kind of what he says, again, in verse 
uh, in verse 8 of chapter 3. Right? Verse 8 of chapter 3, look at me. He says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And that if isn't meant to be conditional because he's just heard the report back from Timothy that they are. So it's better translated maybe, for now we stand because we have heard, because we know, because you are standing firm. Now we live. We get life from this. And this life is characterized, look at verse 9 with me, by joy. For what thanksgiving? He bursts out again in another rhetorical question. What thanksgiving can we give to God for all the joy that we have because of you and because of your faith? And the answer to that rhetorical question is nothing. There is not enough thanks that we can give to God. We can thank God from now to eternity and there will not be enough thanks to express how deeply grateful we are and how joy-filled we are because you are standing firm. This is the picture that Paul says. He says our present joy and our future joy are wrapped up in you and your spiritual flourishing and your well-being. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? This picture, the feel, the focus, the fellowship is a call. It is a call from God for us to 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 step into this pattern, this pattern that Paul has got. It is a call for us to engage with other people, to love them like family, to focus on their spiritual well-being to the extent that we are bound up with them, that we actually get, that our joy is tied to seeing God work in other people. How do we do this? What does that look like? Well, first we need to pray. We need to pray for eyes to see what the author C.S. Lewis saw so clearly long ago. This is a longish quote, but it's worth listening to carefully. He said, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations, It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All our friendships, all our loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. 
You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to, uh, to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We need to pray for this vision. We need to pray that God would give us his eyes to see the people around us. And then as we see them with this spiritual lens that these people will be immortal. And the question is, what is our engagement with them going to be like? Will it be indifference? Or will it be following in the model of Paul? To encourage them to know and to stand firm in Christ. Once we pray for these eyes, then we need to engage with people. We need to talk to them. We need to be face to face with them. We need to slow down enough. We need to make room in our lives for the people around us that God puts into our lives. We need to come here to church looking to engage with one another, not just on a superficial level, but on this deep spiritual level where we can talk about God and what he's doing. We need to get involved in a community. We need to overcome the indifference that comes from separation. Sometimes that means a step of getting involved with a small group with a group of friends to pray with, somehow to connect with others. If you don't know how to do that, come talk to me or Nick or Greg. We want to help you. Put yourself in a position where you can begin to engage with others in the church, but also beyond it, in this. So this is what we do. We pray, we engage, we get involved And this is my message today. That a true gospel ministry calls us to invest our lives in the spiritual good of others. This is what God calls his church to. Now some of you may be here tonight thinking, okay, that's nice, but I'm still figuring this out. I hope you will see that for Paul to know Christ was so precious and so central and so important that he, for him it was worth spending his life helping other people know it. And maybe that will help you to consider the priceless treasure of what it means to know Christ. But for those of you who are here and you are in the church in one way or another, you profess faith in Christ. Hear this call. And be reminded, be reminded that what other call would it be? What other life would it look like to follow Jesus? For isn't it Jesus himself who is the greatest example? For not only did he come to us as a redeemer, but he came to live his life as an example for us to follow. Jesus, who is heart involved in those around him. The passage I read at the beginning of the service, Jesus looked on the crowds with compassion He was moved in the depths of his being because of the people around him. And he engaged. And he engaged with people face to face. He walked the dusty roads with us. Jesus, who was spiritually focused, he said, I didn't come to be served, even though that would be right. 
but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many, that I would die for them so that they might know God, so that they might not be spiritually dead, but be spiritually alive. And he did this with joy. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Jesus and Paul invites us into this joy, into this joy of investing for others. I want to close just by reading a passage from the book of Hebrews about Christ. It says this, Since therefore the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came and entered in to life as a human being so that he might identify with us, so that he might be able to die in our place, but so that he might also suffer temptation just as we do, so that he might be a faithful and compassionate high priest. Jesus did this for us. This is the Savior that we serve. This is why this life is worth living. It is not a life of indifference. It is Christ, our Savior and our example. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this word to us. We thank you for Christ. God, we pray that you might give us, uh, Lord, by your spirit, a heart like his to pour out our lives for others, to invest deeply for your glory and for your namesake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.